Brought to you by Being Well Collective. Comprehensive wellness and engagement solutions for real estate development and senior living. Hello and welcome to the Glowing Older Podcast, where we interview experts on innovation in senior living and the business of aging well. I'm your host, Nancy Griffin, and I'm so pleased to be here today with Bradley Sherman, founder and CEO of The Super Age and author of The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Welcome to the program, Brad. Thanks for having me, Nancy. Well, thank you. Uh, Before we dig into The Super Age and uh, the book, tell us about your background. Uh, I have been in aging and longevity since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Um, I got into the space when I was a teenager, which is a bit odd, uh, but I noticed um, discrepancies in the aging process um, as I traveled between Washington and Pittsburgh. I was at college at the American University in Washington, D.C., and my grandparents were in long-term care at the time. So I, I just kind of fell in love with the space early on and stuck with it for my entire career. Well, your company, The Super Age, does research, consulting. Of course, um, there's your book um, and your focus on inclusive design. So tell us about the company, what you're doing, uh, and about the um, Super Age inclusive design. Uh, yeah, program. so so broadly speaking, you know, when I was, my my expertise has been, been deep into aging society, like I said, for over 20 years, um, both in the long-term care space, but also in workforce. And in writing the book, I think what became abundantly clear to me was there's this gaping hole in society right now around inclusive design in the sense that, you know, nine out of 10 Americans want to live at home for the majority of their life, if not their entire life. Um, this is a stat that is actually global. Um, yet there are very little resources in place that help people do that, especially getting people ahead of a catastrophic event like a fall. So from an inclusive design perspective, we really started looking through the lens of residential first, but very quickly opened up to commercial space as well, because not only are we going to have more people living at home for longer periods of time, we're going to have people working for longer periods of time. We're going to have people consuming for longer periods of time. We're going to have people enjoying their lives and traveling the world for longer periods of time, but they can only do that if space works for them. And right now, space works against about 26% of the population here in the United States. Um, a large majority of that is not covered by ADA, which is really relegated to folks that are um, using wheelchairs, uh, who are blind, and who are deaf. Gotcha. So what, what do you see um, as some of the biggest hindrances uh, around um, the environment for people um, that need uh, inclusive design? Well, time after time, it, it really revolves around three primary spaces, uh, the bathroom, the kitchen, uh, and the stairways. Um, what I see is the kind of the constant thread um, is that people look through the lens of ADA first and foremost and don't consider the broad range of disability and, in fact, acquired disability. You know, the vast majority of us that that are disabled at some point in our life aren't born with disability. We acquire it over our lifetime. And because of that, we don't necessarily think about our space as, be, as really working against us. So we don't change the lighting schemes over time. We don't change the tile in our bathrooms. We don't think about the cabinetry in our kitchens or even where our, our, our water faucets are installed. All of these things can really push us into 
to encountering an event that is problematic at the end of the day. Your research obviously uh, has identified design as being uh, one of the biggest issues uh, when it comes to aging well. So tell us about your certification. Who can get it? How do you get it um, for the inclusive design piece? Yeah, so the certification is relatively new. Um, and we are we are certifying organizations on an ad hoc basis right now. We zero in on five verticals, um, mobility, uh, hearing, neurodiversity and cognition, uh, vision, and then uh, uh, dexterity and strength. Um, we look at not only how these five verticals measure, but also how they interact with one another. The long-term plan for this is, is quite, quite dramatic. Um, I obviously can't share too much today, but right now we are working with organizations to get their spaces right. And when we get their spaces right, we'll certify them. We're also working with product manufacturers as well. And there's quite a bit, I think, coming down the pipe in 2023 and, and in the future and beyond. And there's so much of a need for vetting um, these types of technologies. I want to dig in to that yeah. with you uh, a little bit later. But let's talk about your book. How, how, how did you get the idea? Um, and what are the major themes? Well, you know, I think there's there's really a wonderful uh, body of literature in the aging space right now that ranges from, you know, ageism to the longevity economy. But what I found when I was really setting up my own company was that there wasn't a lot of 30,000 foot view of what, what actually was happening in terms of the larger changes to society. And we can get very caught up in thinking about the older population as monolithic, even those that, that, that really size it as a full economy, say longevity economy. And that doesn't get past the, the barrier of most people. They're still thinking old old folks or older population. The shift that's happening within our society is really a demographic shift. It's a first in the history of the world um, where we'll have more people over 65 than under the age of 18 in less than a decade. And this change is, is really transformative, not just to the way our economy operates, but also to social norms. And, in, and the life course is changing at the same time. Consumer preferences are shifting. We're starting to, 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 to lean back into historical ways of living, i.e. Uh, multi-generational or intergenerational living uh, within, a, within a single home. Um, we're shifting back to traditional ways of working as well. And, and people say, wait a second, what do you mean traditional ways of working? Well, we didn't used to retire. Retiring is a is a 20th century, essentially, construct um, that we said, 65, you stop, you're out, um, have a good life. And we're moving back to one in which people who are over 65, well, well they continue working. People continue working in, histor in history uh, until they can't. Um, and while most people would say, well, wait a second, isn't that problematic? It's just the way it's been. Um, and without those critical investments that we really uh, put aside for the past 50 years in our retirement systems, that means that uh, by the end of this decade, you know, it's, uh, Medicare will not be solvent. A few years later, Social Security will not be solvent. And that doesn't mean these programs go away, but these programs won't be able to pay out as much as they did. That means that the, the risk quotient has been rebalanced and older populations will have to pay more or they'll get less. So they'll get less from Social Security, they'll get less from Medicaid, and they're going to have to put more towards their retirement savings, more towards their retiree health. 
Um, and in order to do that, they either have to be incredibly well saved going into those traditional retirement years, or um, they have to um, stay engaged and employed for longer periods of time so that they're earning money. Um, this is the big economic shift that we're going to see. And virtually everyone that you speak to says, yep, we get it. Older people are going to be a bigger part of our workforce going forward. Even the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States has said that, that 75 plus workers will nearly double by the end of this decade. I mean, that's a really seismic shift in the way we do work here. So do you see ageism changing? I know we, we've addressed so many of the other isms, especially <laughs> recently. So where, where do you think this is going with this um, with this major shift? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm very pragmatic about this, um, much to some chagrin. Um, sexism doesn't go away. Racism doesn't go away. Homophobia doesn't go away. Um, they do shrink in size when there is greater levels of inclusion. In fact, we've seen this uh, time and time again, is that uh, even 20 years ago, it was quite commonplace for there to be jokes about women in the workplace. Uh, 40 years ago, about people who are color. Um, today, that that common joking, that common bias that we encounter in the workforce is really around older people. Uh, we see it not only in the workplace, but also in our communities, uh, in our popular media. When there are greater levels of inclusion, I certainly believe this in the workforce, um, we'll see greater levels of, of interest in older populations. We'll see them as really being part of us, part of the community, contributing members of our society. And I do believe that uh, ageism will ebb. In fact, I already believe it's beginning to ebb um, in certain sectors. You know, I say in my book, um, The Super Age, that the only thing that is consistent, consistent about ageism in our long history is its inconsistency. And when older people have a very productive role in society, they are welcomed, they are, they are worshiped, they are, they are deified in some cases. We have to get back to that because when we have greater generational diversity, not only in our businesses, but society at large, we perform better. We perform better time and time again. Not only is there greater resilience within our companies, it's proven at this point time and time again, but there's greater resilience in our communities as well. We get along better. We get along better. We work together towards more common goals when we have greater age diversity at play. And it's so opposite of how senior living was set up. I mean, in, in since uh, the seventies, eighties, nineties, that was like about putting people in, like putting baby in the corner, if you will. Yeah. Um, no, I, so I, yeah, you have, you have to remember that a lot of a lot of our social engineering, which really started with the advent of the Bismarck pension um, in in eighteen in the eighteen nineties, um, but even even some of the old, older. Um, Alder houses were, were really the first retirement homes. That was really social engineering to solve for a problem that was emerging. The problem that was emerging at the time was we were industrializing. We were moving into cities. The family structure was changing quite rapidly. And because of that, government really started to engineer solutions they thought would benefit us long term. Well, these solutions were predicated on a number of different things. Um, but one thing that was predicated on was essentially con continual growth of society. We continue to grow. So there'd be a lot of younger people near the bottom of the pyramid that could pay for the small number of older people at the top. These social engineers really 
never anticipated that all of a sudden we'd solve for youth mortality and then we'd have all these older people at the top of the pyramid too and a relatively small number of younger people at the bottom period of the of the pyramid so the the numbers don't quite add up so what we're starting to see at least since the 1970s is this slow march back towards multi-generational housing and there's one kind of one graph I like to show that that governs them governs them all, which is the exponential growth in housing costs, housing value, over the past 40 years against, or rather the rather the past 80 years versus the relatively slow growth of salaries over the growth uh, over the same period of time. Like there are just economic forces that are pushing us back into co-housing with our parents, with our grandparents, with our our kids and our grandkids because the economy demands it. Now, when you overlay things like the cost of healthcare, the cost of long-term care, all of a sudden you can see why people are moving back home and they're trying to get away from that model of, well, let's just move into a 55 plus, let's just move into assisted living or long-term care because it no longer makes economic sense anymore. Exactly. And I mean, obviously, Senior living's catered to a very small portion of the population of older adults for whatever reason, economics and, and other reasons. So um, from your perspective, um, from your bird's eye perspective, your research, your consulting, what advice do you have for the senior living and aging service industries? What can they do better? I don't like to point any fingers at any organizations, but I do think that senior living has been slow to um, pivot to some of these new realities. and. And I don't blame them. You know, it's an industry that's been really hammered um, for for decades now. And certainly in the past two years, um, senior living, meaning more congregate care settings, um, really has just gotten beaten up. Um, they've been um, obviously confronted with the stark realities of COVID and trying to manage a pandemic within a highly vulnerable population. And now they're, they're dealing with the realities that... Um, low cost labor is essentially gone. You know, younger people um, are a smaller generation now. Cost of labor is going up. It's pushing up inflation. It's making, you know, an expensive situation within these congregate settings even more expensive. Um, I certainly think as a care provider, you know, I see the, uh, not as me as a care provider, but I think as care providers, they should really be looking more in terms of uh, delivering services into the existing housing infrastructure. Um, because people do want to stay at home. Nine out of 10 Americans, as I say, want to stay at home. Um, and that's a really a global stat as well. But in order to do that, these individuals need to have um, assistance with their daily living, um, their ADLs accounted for. And, and some people during the pandemic did that in ways that didn't require an HCBS, a home and community-based services provider. They did it through Uber. They did it through Instacart. They figured out technology. Um, sometimes with the help of a, of a family member and sometimes on their own, but they were able to cobble together these services that they needed in a pretty remarkable way. So for home and community-based service providers, for senior communities around the country, I say, you know, your, your, your competition isn't the nursing home down the street. It isn't the assisted living community across town. It might actually be a service like upside, which is, you know, a, a new senior housing model that's really racing across the country or Papa or Uber or Instacart or Lyft or any other service, even Amazon that's delivering things directly into the home. So for the industry, I'd say that's large is 
really consider who your competition is and see how they're meeting the needs of their clientele. So true. We've had Jake from Upside on the on the program a couple of times. And of course, uh, you know, he, they're doing two things really well when it comes to technology. They're leveraging their own technology and research. And they're also leveraging the gig economy, uh, partnering with Papa and Uber and all those kind of um, things. So um, talk to us about age tech solutions. What what excites you? What do you think is driving the super age? I have a I think I have a fairly common view about what what age tech can do. And I think with age tech, you've got kind of two lines of, of people that are in age tech right now, the people that are designing for and the people that are designing with um, older populations. Those companies that are designing with older populations in mind are the ones that are going to win the game at the end of the day. Um, I think you need to look no further than wearables, um, specifically something like the Apple Watch, to see how individuals, especially older individuals, are really driving a lot of the growth in these technologies. It's because they're integrated solutions that meet their health needs. You know, there's an emerging class of consumer, an older consumer. Um, some people refer to them, I do in my book, as the middle plus. Um, others will refer to them as super agers, this kind of group of people that's highly connected. Um, uh, they're still working to some degree. They're cognitively and physically fit. But more importantly, they're really intimately interested in managing their well-being. Um, and they want to stay healthy. They want to compress their morbidity. They want to retain their independence for longer periods of time. And they're really willing to invest in that in, in a meaningful way. And whether it's a simple solution, although it's a, a luxury solution for the vast majority of the pop population of purchasing an Apple Watch or a, a more low-cost solution like a Fitbit, um, these individuals are really trying to take charge of their well-being so that they can live longer and and healthier years. Um, it's a real sea change from, I think, my grandparents' generation that accepted the aging process, accepted getting old, and really didn't push too hard against it. What advice would you give for an age tech startup that uh, we talk a lot um, in the senior living industry in particular about having so many different decision makers, you know, you might have the executive director, you have also to sell, sell in air quotes to the adult child, and then of course, the end user. So what would you ad advice would you give them to hit all those sweet spots? This is a bit a bit of a difficult question to answer, because each organization does this so differently. I think when you when you and of course, at different times in the in the life course of a of an individual coming into the seniors housing space, you know, certainly if you're on the front end of the um, uh, of the space where perhaps you have a low number of of services that you offer, perhaps closer to seniors housing or or assisted living um, without Medicare medication management, et cetera, you know, you're really selling directly to the the end user. You're selling a lifestyle at the end of the day. I think this is why we've seen. Um, certain places like uh, Margaritaville really take off in in Florida. It's because they're selling a, a lifestyle that people are quite interested in. What they're not selling in those places is really long-term support. And long-term support, those organizations that do that, they're really selling more to the adult child at the end of the day um, because the adult child wants that peace of mind, I think, more than anything else. Also, the long-term support places tend to be where people go when a catastrophic event has occurred, when they realize that that mom, dad, um, grandma, grandpa, aunt or uncle 
can no longer live alone. Um, so the decision tree there is a lot different. And, and really the value proposition um, is quite different as well. Um, I think that the the partnering um, in the community showing up early as a trusted resource is something that all organizations can do uh, from the onset. I think it's something that's that's essential because you have to know that the community's there and you have to know what the community's offering, especially um, when you're making that that life choice. Um, so I say get in front of the community as early and as often as possible. I know it's such a great opportunity for a partnership. And, and what you said is so true about the 55 plus community being so, so different than assisted living. Uh, you know, the assisted living, I think it's what, 82 years old is the the average age or the. Uh, yeah. So. And, you know, and then you've got, you know, you've got a whole other set of issues that that come there. And I and uh, I'm actually speaking at the Alzheimer's Association tomorrow here in, in D.C. And and one of the one of the things that's just clear and present is the sheer number of people over 85 that are encountering some form of dementia, you know, one out of three. Oh. And and um, of that one out of three, two thirds are female. So what you have is that you have a whole new reality. You know, my grandparents were in long-term care 20 some years ago. The reality has shifted in, in, a, in a generation. Now, you know, these, these communities are really dealing with a much sicker population um, with perhaps more cognitive decline than they ever have had to deal with before. And they're not necessarily equipped either. So while the sheer number of people with dementia and Alzheimer's is growing, there is some good news here. The the proportion of the population is actually going down. Um, but it doesn't change the reality that people are pushing entry into long-term care later and later, and they're going in sicker and sicker. So the the future of care, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge for any organization uh, to manage going forward, especially I think within these communities that offer no supportive services. Um, what happens when all of a sudden, you know, you have a significant percentage of your population that's living there that has significant cognitive decline, if not Alzheimer's? Um, that's an ethical question we haven't fully answered yet. I don't think these organizations have necessarily considered it. Um, but this is where a space, Nancy, I think where age tech actually could come in. Um, certainly age tech mixed with some of the more analog solutions that you're seeing developed in in um, Europe, certainly in France and the Netherlands, to some degree in Japan and a few places here of these dementia friendly communities, you know, folding in some design thinking around how to uh, really lean into these people's new cognitive realities. That's so true, Brad. And I, I know there's a a percentage of people living not in memory care and assist, assisted living that are living with cognitive impairment and just not not identified, right? And and there's so many different types of of dementia, and and it's a it's a very complicated issue. But we yeah, could we could it, yeah. It's super gray. I mean, and that's the thing is that um, one size does not fit all. And that's going to be a challenge for for organizations in which their model was designed is essentially one size fits all. Um, that's going to be a place of modification. Um, I certainly think as 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 communities consider the realities of an aging population, which does come with a larger number of people that have cognitive uh, decline, I think we'll have to see more community centered approaches to it as well. 
um, both analog and digital in that age tech space. Um, time will tell how these evolve, but I do think you're going to see different social partners coming together, whether it's the government, the private sector, nonprofits, academia, health centers, long-term care centers, really coming together around how do we solve for this within our communities? Because if we don't have a team approach to it, if we remain siloed, which is essentially the, the current state of things, we will never solve for the long-term realities that are going to hit us smack in the face. I so agree. And, uh, you know, when you look at the uh, economics of providing this tech kind of care, uh, eating healthy, providing exercise, providing sleep programs, all those kind of wellness programs just sort of seem to get brushed aside when there's more and more research that the social determinants of health are more and more important for, for longevity, right? Well, I, I mean, everything goes hand in hand, right? You know, at the end of yeah. the day, you can't, you can't do one without the other. Like we should be eating healthy. Um, we should be, you know, uh, limiting our drink, limiting our smoking, limiting our drug use for those that do. Um, but we should also we should also be really considered the fact that if you are social, that social determinants of health, if you are engaged, if you do have a purposeful life, you do live longer. So one of the things that I really hope people do is they take a look at a book like The Super Age, but they also take a look at a book like Blue Zones and say, okay, how do we line up what's really coming? with what's already happened and find a lane in modernity that takes these lessons from the past, what's coming in the future to build a society that really does uh, uh, compress morbidity, allow people to live uh, for longer years in health connected, purposeful lives. That's where our focus should be going forward. But that does require uh, some slight re-engineering and it does take time. You know, you don't turn a ship like uh, humanity around overnight. It happens quite slowly. That's so true, Brad. Well, I want to talk about um, the workplace um, for a moment. We've got a few minutes left here, but I know that's been um, a focus of yours. So talk to us about workplace shifts um, and what needs to happen. I mean, first and foremost, what we had during the pandemic was we had an excess number of people leaving the workforce and fewer people coming in. Um, the boomers, as you know, were our biggest generation. Now they're, they're now they're our second largest after the millennials. Um, but Gen Z, that, that that population that's coming into the workforce today, is small. They're they're just a few million bigger than than Gen X. Um, and because they're coming into a workforce in which there is heightened demand and lessened supply, the the workplace dynamics have really changed. So. If employers really want to expand their labor pool, which right now is really too tight, there are too many jobs and not enough people, uh, and because of that, salaries are going up, benefits are going up, which I actually think is a good thing at the end of the day. But if they want to limit some of that risk, if employers want to limit some of that risk, they have to reach out to age-diverse populations. And here's the bonus. If you do that, you build an organization that has greater resilience for longer periods of time, you have empathy built into your product and service design and delivery because you have people that will be your end users in the workplace that are also going to be um, a big part of this consumer group that's emerging, this longevity economy, as, as AARP and, and, and Joe Coughlin call it. 
that is an essential component to this. And we're already seeing it happening in businesses around the world, whether it be the auto industry uh, in Germany that is working to extend uh, longevity of their entire workforce by rethinking ergonomics. Or if it's more inclusive, um, perhaps in a country like Japan where they're changing retail environments by thinking about the end user by bringing in end users to work alongside younger populations. I think the future is age-diverse companies come back. They come back in a roaring fashion in 2023. That's one of my big three predictions uh, for uh, next year. And when we consider the fact that we'll be working alongside a more age-diverse population, it'll really force us to reconsider um, what products and services we bring to marketplace. And then um, you know, if you're thinking like a company like Apple, what services or technologies are we incorporating in devices that are already in the marketplace? How do we make things more useful for people that are integrated rather than exclusive? Because the last thing any of us want at the end of the day uh, is to be othered, unless we're being othered is cool. That's the only thing we're okay with. <laughs> And, you know, the as, as I think Joe Coughlin has said a number of times, you know, those those uh, beige devices really don't don't capture it. But I think Apple's just such a unique case test, a uh, test case, rather, because they've taken a gray button device um, uh, like the life alert, which we all remember from the 1980s and 1990s. You know, I've fallen and I can't get up and they've integrated it into the Apple watch. They've integrated it. So if you fall now with an Apple watch you get an alert sent to to an emergency provider or to a family member. Like they've taken something so awful and they've integrated it and now it's cool. That's a masterclass in inclusion. Yeah, I um, have an Apple watch in case I fall off my horse. <laughs> and, and, you know, my parents have one in case they fall when they're hiking or skiing yep. or kayaking. Like these are not that model of old anymore. We're not thinking about through the lens of, you know, little white haired ladies flailing on their bathroom floor. We're thinking about men, women, 70s, 80s, even 90s, running marathons, mountain biking, cross country skiing. That's our lens of what old looks like today. And that's a great way to think about what the future considers for this population. Because once we start realizing that they're active, engaged, and part of us, we build things that are better for them and that are better for all of us at the end of the day. That's so great, Brad. How can people find out your other predictions? Uh, you mentioned one. <laughs> follow, yeah. but first and foremost, follow me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is where I engage 99.9% uh, .9 of the time. You can always uh, reach out to us at the superage.com. Um, uh, there's a contact form there and we try to keep that up to date as well. But uh, uh, follow us, grab the book. Um, which you can get on Amazon. Um, but I look forward to hearing from you and I look forward to talking more about the future. Well, I um, I just finished the book. It's fabulous. So Brad, what gets you most excited these days? The future is looking really good. Um, <laughs> I know it doesn't seem that way. I know it's hard uh, at times uh, to get through the noise, but we are living in the most dynamic period, I think, of human history. Um, we are certainly living through perhaps one of the greatest demographic tra transformations, certainly the greatest greatest demographic transformation I will ever experience in my lifetime. And because of that, we have a whole new world to build. And it's a world that really is inclusive at the end of the day that considers all of our ages and all of our abilities. If we do that, it's going to be awesome. Well, thank you for all that you are doing and for joining us today. It's been a delight. Awesome. Thanks for having me today. 
You've been listening to the Glowing Older Podcast. Glowing Older Podcast.